Uh, it is a blessing, obviously, uh, to be with you. It's always an honor to be able to share with you. There are many places you could have chosen to be this morning, but you chose to be here. So I say thank you for coming, and uh, you are more than welcome. Um, I would also like to reiterate my appreciation for your generosity as we celebrated pastor appreciation last week, and it is such a blessing. I will say this, that as a pastor, uh, it's more than just receiving a financial gift, but it's about knowing that we are touching the lives of other individuals. So thank you for your generous affirmation. It's an opportunity for us to just celebrate what God is doing in the lives of people here. You know, a few weeks back, we began a series that is entitled, God Is. The purpose of this series is simply to identify various attributes of God that are always true. We may not always be aware of these attributes, but they are always true. I was talking with someone this week who asked the question, in one word, who is God to you? My first response is that he is my provider. My friend then responded that he sees God more as his deliverer, as he has come out of a life of addiction, but he is now free from that addiction. Other people might use terms like healer, father, teacher, redeemer, or savior. All of these terms would be correct, although not all of us would be able to fully understand each one of those as we have seen God in different ways. In fact, the odds are that as I shared some of those terms, many of you likely thought of other terms that you would use to define who God is to you in a very personal way. But the purpose of this series is to identify certain attributes that will always be true regardless of what we are going through. For example, in the first week of this series, Colby identified the fact that God is sovereign. This deals with his authority, his supreme authority over everything. As the King of kings and the Lord of lords, God has no limitations. There is no box that he will fit in. Consider just a few of the claims that the Bible makes about God. In Revelation 21, verse 6, it tells us that God is above all things and he is before all things, that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is immortal and he is present everywhere so that everyone can know him. That's a pretty unique thing to say about someone because only God fits that category. Colossians 1.16 teaches us that God created all things and holds all things together, both in heaven and on earth, both visible and invisible. And Romans 11.33 declares that God knows all things past, present, and future. There is no limit to his knowledge for God knows everything completely before it even happens. It's an interesting idea, before it even happens. That means he knows what's about to take place. He knows what I'm about to say. And y'all don't, because you haven't seen my notes. But God knows everything. From the Old Testament, Jeremiah 32, 17 reveals that God can do all things. And he can accomplish all things. For nothing is too difficult for him, and he orchestrates and determines everything that is going to happen in our lives. 
God wants us more than anything to know that he is truly over everything. He is sovereign. Along those lines, in keeping with what I shared last week, God is also always present and available to help. You remember the example that I used last week of Hagar, a woman who we rarely even speak of, yet when she felt abandoned by God, she discovered that he was always there and he was absolutely desiring to provide for her. She just needed to call out to him and then to open her eyes to see that everything she needed was sitting right in front of her. Well, today, I want us to look at another attribute of God. I want all of you to know that he is also, God is also our merciful judge. Now, it should be noted that there are two sides to that title. On the one hand, it is great to know that our God is merciful. It's great to know that he is one who extends grace to us. Often the terms mercy and grace are used interchangeably. Uh, One basically is God giving us what we don't deserve. The other is God not giving us what we do deserve. Uh, Let's do a little exercise real quick. Everyone on the count of three, I want you to take a deep breath with me. One, two, three. All right, that was mercy. The fact that you were able to take a deep breath, you see, the thing is, if we get what we deserve, we are told already that the wages of sin is death, which means all of us deserve death because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is his mercy that we were able to take that deep breath today, that we were able to take a shallow breath today is his mercy. That is a welcome thing to us. We love the idea of mercy. When you're in trouble, when you've done something you shouldn't do, you want mercy. You get pulled over on the side of the road, you want mercy from that police officer. We all love mercy when it's being applied to us. Now, we might not always feel the same way when it's somebody else. You ever had somebody fly past you down the road and immediately you see a police officer pulling behind him and you're thinking, yeah, he's getting what he deserves. There are times we don't want mercy, but when it's related to us, we always want mercy. And that's a beautiful thing. But there is another side to him being the merciful judge. It should be concerning to us to know that God is the one who will stand in judgment over us. After all, he is a perfect God, which means he has very high expectations for us. I remember years ago spending some time out hiking in the Badlands. The Badlands are a uniquely beautiful region in South Dakota. What makes them stand out most is the large jagged rocks that seem to be everywhere. As you're hiking through this area, it's... It's easy to see those rocks as potential hazards. You certainly would hate to fall on one of them. But the other side to that is those rocks give you something to grip. When your shoes actually rest on those rocks, as you step the same rocks that are dangerous also give you the ability to climb higher than where you are already. Likewise, God, as a merciful judge... He provides us with a balance of risk and reward. We know that he will hold us accountable. But we also know that he is the, in many ways, the author of mercy. 
He is full of mercy toward us. To help illustrate that today, I want us to look at a passage in Hebrews chapter 4. If you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 4, and we're going to begin by looking in verse 13, and we'll read through verse 16. Again, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 13 to 16, and I'll be reading from the ESV this morning, and this is what it says. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The first thing that I want you to see today is that we serve a God who sees everything. The eyes of the Lord miss nothing. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. God knows what you have done, and yet he still loves you. He still wants you. He still gave his only son for you. Have you ever done something where you thought, man, if, if other people knew the things that I had done, there's no way that they would even talk to me. There's no way that anyone would want anything to do with me. Yet God knows all about all of those things. Yet he still loves you as, as if you were the most important person in the world. Psalm 138 verse 6 tells us that he still sits high and he looks low and he still is at the right hand of God. And therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we possess, that we profess. Everything God does in your life or allows to happen in your life, because sometimes it's not always that God's trying to teach you a lesson, but God can use every experience that we have, everything that happens in our lives is God's tool of maturing us into the image of the Son, Jesus Christ. Whatever you face today, God is very much aware of your suffering and struggle. He is always looking, so hold fast, believing that he will use even this for his good. So my first point is clearly that God sees everything. And my second point is going to sound a little bit redundant, but it's really not. It's what we see in the second half of verse 13. Listen to this. God ignores nothing. There's a big difference between seeing something and not ignoring something. How many of you have ever known something, but you tried to play dumb? It's hard to do sometimes, isn't it? Let me give you an example of this. Imagine that you know somebody had said something derogatory about you but you let it slide. Or perhaps you have a child who has done something that warrants your discipline, but you choose to ignore it. 
I can think, some, think of some pretty good reasons why one might choose to ignore an offense. In fact, one might even call it incredibly gracious or merciful. However, in Hebrews 4.13, it tells us that God ignores nothing. According to the second half of that verse, we're told that all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is again a twofold statement. On the one hand, we're not able to hide anything from God. And again, this can be good or bad. On the good side of this, we don't have to play the game with God, pretending to be something that we are not. He already knows that we are sinners. He already knows where we have fallen short. He already knows every strength and every weakness that we've ever had. In fact, if he's genuinely all-knowing, he already knows every failure that even awaits us. Do you remember Peter's sin where he turned his back on the Lord? Do you remember Jesus' words to him at the Last Supper when he warned him that Satan was about to try to sift you out? He said, but I have prayed for you. But notice that as he gave this word of instruction or warning to Peter, he said, I have prayed for you. Not that you wouldn't fall, but although I imagine he did, Father, help him to make the right choice. But it actually says, I have prayed for you that when you return, which means you're going to fall away, you're going to turn your back on me. In fact, Jesus tells him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. He tells him, this is what's going to happen. But he says, I have prayed for you, that when you turn back, that you would lead the people. And that's exactly what he does. It's as if Jesus knew that the sin was about to happen, but he clearly still loved Peter anyways. So why do we try to hide things from God? I mean, if he knew we were going to do it before we did it, then what are we hiding from him? The point is, he knows, yet he still loves us in spite of it. Of course, I told you that there's another side to this. The last thing that verse reveals is that there is one to whom we must give an account in other words, there will come a day that every individual will stand before God and we will have to give an account regarding what we have done in this lifetime. And this fits with what we find in Philippians 2, verse 10 and 11, which says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we read, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And in Romans 14.12, we hear a similar statement. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So you get the point. We will all one day stand before God and he will judge us based on the way we have lived our lives 
and how we have responded to his offer of grace. Let me stretch you for just a moment this morning with one other verse that's not intended for those outside of the body of Christ. But for those who would call themselves the church, we're talking about the judgment of God. And our first thought when we think of the judgment of God is there is coming a day when the Lord will come and he will judge the entire earth. But our thought is they're going to be in trouble. But what if the judgment of God is not just about them, but about us? 1 Peter 4.17, listen to this. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Within this verse is the idea that God is about to bring judgment upon all of humanity, but he's not starting out there. Instead, he is starting in here with the household of God. But wait, you, you probably sitting here thinking, but who, who would he be judging within the household of God? We're all forgiven. We've all prayed the prayer that confessed our sins and now we're good, so our ticket's punched. We don't have to worry about the judgment of God. But what if he were judging us? No, no, I'm good. I don't have to worry about it. I'm glad that you've said a prayer. I'm glad that you are defined as a believer in Jesus Christ. But does that mean that God no longer cares about the way you live your life? Does that mean that he will simply ignore your choice to remain in your sin? The very thing that cost Jesus his life? The answer is a resounding no. See, salvation is not a license to sin without fear of God's judgment. Instead, it is a license to walk away from that sin, believing that God is able to change you completely, and thereby removing the need to fear the judgment of God. I talked with a friend this week who shared his concern that it seems impossible today to tell the difference between those who are in the household of God and those who are not. I want to repeat that. He's concerned because it seems impossible to tell the difference between those who are in the household of God, us, and those who are outside of the household of God. We live in what's called the Bible Belt, where everyone has a faith connection. They can remember when they said a prayer, or they grew up in a church, or their family is connected to a church, or their grandpa used to be a pastor, yet they don't live any different from anybody else out in the world. For many, church attendance is not important. The language that they use outside in the world, they wouldn't use in front of their mamas. And if the pastor were there, they'd be a lot more careful about what they said. Their integrity, unfortunately, does not stand out as being anything better than those around them. Yet we have taken on the name of Jesus Christ. 
And the problem is we do nothing but create confusion in a watching world. They look good when they're at church. Come Sunday, they'll dress up really nice and look the part. Or they'll run into the pastor or somebody else from church and suddenly they seem like a completely different person. They're like the speeding driver who suddenly realizes that there is a police car behind them. And they suddenly become the best driver in the world, obeying every traffic law. I've been in those police cars where the officer is thinking, can you just move over so I can get by you? Because what happens so often is those who are speeding suddenly want to drive exactly according to the law. And we've got some church people who do the exact same thing. We're hoping that perhaps God will blink and maybe not see the way that we're living when nobody else is around, but God never blinks. He knows what's going on. He knows what's happening when other people can't see. There is no moment where you can sin and not have God aware of it. I talked about it last week, but this is the church of Laodicea, the one from Revelation chapter 3. The way many in the church live gives Jesus a bad name. Well, it's time to stop it. It's time to recognize that there is a day of judgment, not just for them, but for us as well, and it is coming. I don't know when it will happen. It may be a hundred years from now, maybe a thousand years from now, but it could be today. It is time for us as the body of Christ, as the household of God, to live like it could be today. We need to be ready. The household of God, that includes you. He is our merciful judge, which means his judgment will come upon us. I'm going to counter this very direct message of us needing to make sure we're ready because of the coming judgment of God. It's going to sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth here, but I'm not. I want you to listen real quick. We're talking about accountability and judgment that is coming for God's people. There's no doubt that God has very high expectations for his people, for you and for me. But just as there is a coming judgment, there is also mercy and grace. Verses 14 and 15 identify the fact that Jesus, still back in Hebrews 4, verses 14 and 15 identify the fact that Jesus has been there. He's been tempted just as we have been tempted, but he chose to reject sin. But then in verse 16, we read this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When I was in college, I was a relatively new driver, and to be completely honest, I wasn't a very good driver. I remember one night driving down Madden Bridge Road, and I suddenly saw blue lights in my rearview mirror. For those of you who are familiar with the area, I was pulled over just before Pike Road for doing 54 in a 35. I paid the ticket and I had to deal with all the consequences associated with it. In fact, I never thought about it again 
until a couple of years ago. So you're talking 25 years past and all of a sudden I'm back living in this area. That's when my oldest son got pulled over riding down Madden Bridge Road just before Pike Road for doing 54 and a 35. On the one hand, I wanted to throw the book at Andrew. But on the other hand, I could relate far too well. You know, it's a lot easier to show grace and mercy when you've been there. Well, Jesus walked among humanity. I told you earlier in our scripture passage that he experienced all the same things that we experienced, yet he was without sin. We read in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. What that means is that you're not the first ones to be tempted. In fact, there is nothing new under the sun, according to Solomon. Everything that you face, all the temptations that are there, yeah, they may look a little bit different because it's unique to your particular situation, but it's the same thing that's existed all along. Did you know sexual immorality was not the creation of this current generation? Sexual immorality has been along, around for a long, long time. Did you know deceit was not the creation of the previous generation? It's been around for a long, long time. Every sin that we deal with has been here. Every temptation, it's been here. The fact is, God is very much aware of what we face because Jesus himself has already faced it. The only thing he didn't face was actually him participating in the act of sin. Now, I will say this, a little bit interesting, he did actually know the weight of sin. In fact, Jesus took the weight of sin upon himself when he chose to go to the cross for you and for me. See, I said at the beginning that the wage of sin is death. This is where the mercy comes in, and it's a beautiful thing. What that means is every single one of us, there is a weight of sin that should have been laid on us. There is a weight that every one of us should have had to deal with. But what happened was God said, you know what? I'm going to take care of that weight. I will take that upon me. I will pay the price for your sin. See, God is our judge, and there will come a day that we will all stand before him but I can't think of a better judge because he's been here. He knows where we are today. He knows where we've been. And he wants so much to be able to offer us mercy. It doesn't mean that he won't offer judgment because clearly the scriptures explain that he will judge humanity. And there are high expectations. But I am so grateful for the grace of God. Where I have fallen short, he has never fallen short. Rather, he has made a way for all of us to find healing and forgiveness. Today, I rejoice that he is our merciful judge. To you, who is God? Let me tell you who he is to me. He is my provider, but he is also my savior. He is my deliverer. And one day I will come before him. First of all, I will celebrate his presence. 
I read from Revelation 3 last week, dealing with the church of Laodicea. Revelation 3.20, most of us are familiar with, says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone answers, I will come in and I will sup with him or eat with him. I love Revelation 3.21. says, To him who overcomes, Jesus speaking, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat with my father on his throne. This is the judge, the righteous, merciful judge, saying, I'm going to give you the chance to come and sit on my lap to be able to celebrate his presence. There's a part of me that and I get why we fear the judgment of God, being welcomed into his presence, realizing that he is holy and we are not. And I get why there's a sense of intimidation. But he says, I'm going to give you the chance to come and sit on my lap. To me, this is so much like what happens in malls at Christmas time, but it's the real deal. Where kids go and their idea is to sit on Santa Claus's lap and some of them see this big red-suited fat man with a white beard and they're scared to death because they don't want anything to do with him. I think that there are many who are going to look upon God and there will be a sense of fear and overwhelming grief because they don't want anything to do with him because they know that their sin has controlled their lives and that he is the judge. But there will be others. They're going to see him and they're going to immediately recognize that they're in the presence of something beautiful and they're going to want to come and sit on the lap of Jesus. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I ever came and sat with my father on his throne. Do you look forward to that day or do you fear that day? If you fear that day, I want you to know you don't have to. Your sins can be forgiven, and you can experience the mercy that he wants to extend to you, if you will bow your heads with me. With every head bowed and eye closed this morning, maybe today you fear the day of God's judgment. And maybe right now you would say, I don't want to live in fear of the judgment of God, but rather I want to look forward to being in the presence of a merciful, loving, and gracious God. He tells us that if we will confess our sins, that he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And at that point, we can come boldly before the throne of God simply because of what he has done. If that's you this morning and you need that forgiveness, if you would just raise your hand, I want to be able to lead you through a prayer here in just a moment. Father, we come before you today. And Lord, more than anything, we are celebrating who you are and what you have done for us. Father, you are all of these things. You are all-knowing. You are all-powerful. You're always present to help but you are also our merciful judge. And we come before you today and we are very much aware that there is a day of accountability that will come even for those who are inside the household of God. 
Lord, I pray today that we would be ready, that the rest of the world would look upon us as the church and they would see people who are truly being transformed by the presence and the power of a holy God. And Lord, I pray that when that day comes, that we are welcomed into your presence for judgment, that it would not be a day of fear and trembling, but rather it would be an opportunity for us to simply rejoice because we are now in the presence of our Savior and our Lord. Father, if there be one here today that does not have that peace going into that day, Lord, I pray that today you would grant forgiveness. I pray that right now you would take away whatever sins have plagued them. And I pray that from this moment forward, they would be able to walk as those who are fully surrendered to you. No longer content carrying sin with us. Help us to leave it behind. To never go back to the way we used to be. Father, I pray for those who today are walking in your grace and becoming more like you. I pray that you would help us every single day to be more like you than we were the day before. Forgive us when we fall short and help us to truly show the world what it is to be a child of God. Let the world know that there is a difference between those in the household of God and those outside. Let us be the ones to show them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It is such a blessing to have each of you with us. Uh, we did not pass the offering plate in service, and back during COVID stuff, we made this change just because we didn't want people touching common surfaces. Uh, as you leave today, uh, there will be people at the doors. If you would like to give, you are more than welcome to. Remember, that is an act of worship, and we are grateful that you would choose to worship in that way. Thank you for being with us this morning, and go in peace.